Good afternoon, Dr. Ganguera here for part two of AMP kinase. Remember, we're doing a deep dive into particular biomolecular regulators. We introduced AMP kinase in the last episode of Authentic Biochemistry, which was just earlier today. I told you I was going to try to get several in here before the Christmas holiday. And so here I am back on Sunday afternoon working dutifully for you um, because I've got nothing better to do, which is not a sarcasm, acting like I wish I didn't have to do it, just the opposite. I think it's a great thing to do to um, help educate and to increase knowledge, especially when it comes to authentic biochemistry. And that's exactly what we're doing today. So last time I cut off a little bit prematurely because uh, of time constraints, I was talking to you about mTOR, molecular target of rapamycin. I was telling you it's, it is just like AM kinase uh, in terms of class of protein. It is a serine threonine protein kinase. However, after that, uh, what it does in terms of cellular metabolism is a contrarian. And this is how it works out. It's a central regulator, mTOR, that is, of cellular metabolism. Okay, so far, it sounds like amkinase. Growth and survival in response to hormones uh, indirectly. That also could fit amkinase. Nutrient supply, energy, of course, bioenergetics and stress metabolism, including your immune response. All of those are associated with mTOR, as they are in almost the opposing grid to AMP kinase. Now, mTOR directly, and there's a reason why I'm going through mTOR, so just follow along, please. mTOR directly or indirectly regulates the phosphorylation of somewhere between 800 to 1,000 different polypeptides. So you can understand the network of control over metabolism. If this, if this complex is phosphorylating 1,000 proteins, each one of those proteins has uh, just even, say, a single activity and some signal transduction, and each one of those signaling cascades will impart an effect on a certain valence, let's say, um, either-or type of valence, then you can understand that this would be multiplications of differentiating molecular and ordinate biochemical control, right? So mTOR is a very powerful system in eukaryotes. Now, it functions as part of a two structurally and functionally distinct signaling complex motif. I mentioned this many times before. It's mTORC1, mTORC2, where the C is complex, of course. Now, the activated mTORC1 will upregulate polypeptide synthesis, that is, translation, It'll do so by phosphorylating key regulators of that process, both the RNA translation itself, but also ribosomal assembly. Now, a couple of particulars there. It includes the phosphorylation of the EIF4EBP1. So that's a eukaryotic initiation factor for translation. And the release of its inhibition towards the elongation initiation factor, that would be EIF4E. 
So two different things, the initiation factor itself and then the elongation initiation factor for E, so heavy-duty control over translation in the positive direction. Moreover, mTOR phosphorylates and activates RPS6KB1 and the RPS6KB2. You're right, those are different kinases. And what they do as well is promote protein synthesis by modulating the activity of downstream targets, including ribosomal protein S6, the eukaryotic translation initiation factor EIF4B, and the inhibitor of translation initiation, PDC-D4. So you can see the mTOR has global responsive networks. Now, it stimulates also mTOR primidine biosynthesis through the transcriptional enhancement of the pentose phosphate pathway, which of course, among other things, produces 5-phosphoribosyl-1-pyrophosphate, which itself is an allosteric activator of the initiation of pyrimidine biosynthesis itself, okay? So that whole function on uh, nucle uh, nucleotide biosynthesis, particularly the pyrimidine nucleotides, is controlled by mTORC1. It also regulates ribosomal synthesis by activating the RNA polymerase-3-dependent transcription, which is required to make ribosomal RNA, you know. <clears throat> Finally, mTOR also regulates lipid biosynthesis, working through the sterile response element binding factor and the sterile response element binding protein and the LPIN. All of those are pro-fatty acid synthesis, pro-cholesterologenesis systems. mTORC1 also negatively regulates autophagy. So it cuts down on macromolecular degradation to maintain steady state stasis of the living cell. It, it blocks autophagy. So it goes full stop into the uh, leading to um, cell cycle program increase and doing so then sets up for DNA synthesis, first of all, nucleotides, as I just mentioned to you. And then of course, the completion uh, via DNA replication and then cell scission, uh, cytokinesis, that is, at the last stages of mitosis. Now, under nutrient sufficiency, mTORC1 phosphorylates a protein called ULK1 at a very particular serine 758. That disrupts the interaction with AMP kinase and preventing activation of ULK1. And it also prevents autophagy through the phosphorylation of the direct autophagy inhibitor, DAP. mTORC1, therefore, exerts a feedback control on upstream factor and growth factor synthesis and signaling. Now, as part of the mTORC complex, too, the mTOR may regulate other cellular processes, including cell survival. It's, again, it, it seems antithetical to autophagy, but cell survival can also mean cell um, proliferation, of course. And one of the things mTORC does is work on the cytoskeleton, where it plays a critical role in the phosphorylation, again, of a, a particular amino acid on the AKT1, which is part of its transcriptional control and activation control. And that's on a serine 473 on AKT1. 
So that generates a pro-survival effector system known as, that's right, PIP3 kinase, generating uh, phosphonoxide 3 kinase activation. So mTORC2, finally, we can also say, and there's more to it than this, I'm just summarizing, also uh, activates and controls actin cytoskeleton reorganization. Um, usually to set up for cell cycle, obviously. Okay. So we know that metformin is a drug that's constantly being prescribed for type 2 diabetics. Still is a very major drug in the po- human population, particularly in the United States. Metformin and a sugar analog named acarbose are both anti-diabetic drugs of the type 2 variety. Metformin, of course, improves health span in animal models, and it does so apparently by blocking gluconeogenesis. So that's the main function of metformin and acarbose. In fact, the main side of action for metformin is in the liver, And its main function is to reduce excessive gluconeogenesis, which occurs in type 2 diabetics. So the main effect of the drug, which actually comes from a larger family of pharmaceuticals called the biguanide family, is acutely to decrease hepatic gluconeogenesis, mostly through a mild and transient inhibition of the mitochondrial respiratory chain complex one, which is of course the NADH oxidase. In addition to that, the resulting decrease in hepatic energy status, because you decrease the amount of electrons driven off of NADH, you block then or you hinder the electron transport chain through all the complexes in the inner mitochondrial membrane. And ultimately, you don't drive enough proton motive force to generate the proton pumping ATPase. So you lose ATP synthesis. <clears throat> now, in addition to all that, this because of the energy status, what do you think it does? It decreases the in hepatic energy status activating AMP-activated protein kinase. So therefore, it blocks AMP kinase activity, or that is, it activates the AMP kinase activity by blocking the anabolic activity, therefore, of mTOR. So it promotes the AMP kinase activity, but at the same time diminishes the anabolic pathways. Hope that's clear. That's why it blocks gluconeogenesis. So um, I could tell you a little bit more about metformin. Why not? We're here. It has a high acid dissociation constant. So its pKa is way up there, 12.4. So that means it's always going to exist in cells. It's a positively charged protonated cation under all physiological conditions. And as a result of that, it can only marginally cross plasma membrane. And it does so actually by passive diffusion. So its intracellular transport is mediated by different isoforms of the organic cation transporters known as the OCTs. And they depend on tissue um, 
expression. If you have act one in the liver, act two in the kidney, you get what I'm saying. Now, what's inside the cytoplasmic compartment, for example, in mitochondria as well, the these particular class of drugs here, like metformin, will constitute um, a blockage, again, of that NADH oxidase. The positive charge of metformin is probably accounting for its accumulation within the matrix of the energized mitochondrion, and is driven by, of course, the membrane potential of the delta psi, whereas the apolar hydrocarbon side chain of the drug you got, I just told you what the cation did. Now I'm telling you about the hydrocarbon side chain of the drug. Probably also promotes binding to the hydrophobic structures, especially the phospholipids that are annular organizing activators of the electron transport chain within the inner and the outer mitochondrial membrane as it results in transporter mechanisms for the outer specifically. Now, the exact mechanisms of way metformin works are even beyond this, uh, but at least we have figured out that basically the drug inhibits mitochondrial res respiratory chain or electron transport chain activity at complex one. Okay, so I just wanted to give you that little bit of information so that you had um, metformin under your belt. Now, AMPK is an obligate heterotrimeric complex, as we've mentioned in the last lecture. And as those alpha, beta, and gamma subunits, I told you also the calic domain is contained in the alpha and the beta and gamma are regulatory, which means they can be allosterically modified, right? All the S forms of each subunit class can interact in a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one heterotrimeric ratio. And if you add that all that up, it, it leads to at least 12 possible AMPK complexes. The expression of each isoform varies across tissues and cells with the alpha one, beta one, and gamma one subunits being expressed across all of those tissues means that each one of those assemblies is possible, although it is not observed, which means there's higher level regulation, at least at the expression of the um, protein at the transcriptional level and probably also post-translational modifications of the subunits. So the AMPK alpha-2 and AMPK beta-2 are the dominant isoforms in the skeletal and cardiac muscle, for example. And of all the subunit isoforms, the AMPK gamma-3 expression is the most restricted. <laughs> Again, you only find that in skeletal and cardiac. So the catalytic alpha and two regulatory beta-gammas have several structural elements that enable the dynamic regulation of the AMP kinase activity holistically. It also, besides activity, also its responsivity to allosteric regulation. So allosteric effectors include long chain fatty acyl coas that will activate, salicylic acid will as well. Energetic deprivation includes, these are all activating, glucose and oxygen limitating de deprivation, exercise, oxfos inhibitors. I just mentioned those like metformin. I didn't mention rotenone, but that also functions that way. <clears throat> and AMP mimetics like ACAR, which is an intermediate nucleotide biosynthesis. Okay, all of those will aid in the expression and then the activation of the AMP kinase, which is extremely uh, uh, controlled at the level of allosteric control, AMP binding to 
any number of four different membrane spanning regions known as the CB, uh, CBS1 through 4. It's all part of the polypeptide now. And you also have a phosphorylation of a serine 108, which is autocatalytically uh, uh, modified. Furthermore, you have another autocatalytically phosphorylated KD site at threonine 172, which can also be phosphorylated by LKB1 after dimerization of the Strad MO25 complex on LKB1, and also directly by the calcium calmodulin kinase kinase cascade induced by free calcium, and that's what will indeed phosphorylate that threonine-172. And that's in the kinase domain, okay? So, again, you have phosphorylation of threonine-172 of the alpha subunit, and that's done so by the upstream kinases, and that's the primary AMP kinase activating events. This is hierarchical. That, and of course, in the adenine nucleotide energy contest, you need a lot of AMP, as I've been saying. <clears throat> now, upon activation, AMP kinase acts as a, on multiple targets or substrates, and it will rapidly restore cellular energy while at the same time promoting prolonged support of energetic sufficiency. So it does multiple things once you activate the AMP kinase with, with again, with all this AMP and with these multiple phosphorylation centers of gravity. So when you have an active AMP kinase, you get this mitochondrial biogenesis effect, lysosomal biogenesis, and in fact, also mitophagic flux, which means old mitochondria are removed, new mitochondria are synthesized. So that means that you are going to have catabolic processes functioning. What are they? Glycolysis, and unlike mTOR, which is opposing, increases in autophagy from AMP kinase. And of course, beta oxidation, particularly fatty acid oxidation of uh, all chain fatty acids. Um, it blocks, however, the anabolic processes such as lipogenesis, um, protein translation, as we have been mentioning, and even glycogen storage, that is polymerization of glucose to form glycogen for storage granule production in the cells. In the liver, for example, liver, liver is a major place where AMP kinase is functioning. So the AMP kinase alpha subunits contain the kinase domain at that, and that's all down to the N terminus, the amino terminus of the protein. There's also something called the autoinhibitory domain or AID, and that's coupled to a linker region. And then there is the beta gamma subunit binding domain at the carboxy terminus of the polypeptide, mature polypeptide. Now within the kinase domain. You have a conserved threonine residue, as already mentioned, threonine 172. So any mutations there will um, render the kinase inactive. And in fact, that phosphorylation of that threonine is in something called the activation polypeptide loop. And it's phosphorylated by an upstream kinase, as I mentioned, also by the liver kinase B1, that's known as LKB1, and then another one I mentioned, I will repeat now, the calcium chemotrium dependent protein kinase kinase beta, that's CAMKK beta 2. And that 3 e 172 phosphorylation 
as I said, is absolutely necessary for the activation of the AMP kinase, all of them. Now, AMP kinase beta semis contain an N-terminus meristylation site as well. Now, meristic acid, of course, is C14 saturated fatty acid. And this post this translational modification actually occurs during translation. So it's co-translational. Um, there are a couple other sites there. There's a conserved carbohydrate binding module on the beta subunit, or CBM, it's known as. And that facilitates interaction with glycogen, storage glycogen. And then the alpha-gamma binding domain at the carboxy terminus also is associates with this carbohydrate binding domain and also is linked up to the meristylation pathway. It's another one of the signatures for um, meristylation during uh, translation. <clears throat> now, recent work has assessed physiological implications of the AMP kinase beta subunit, specifically with that CBM glycogen binding, which is a curious thing, a macromolecule like glycogen binding to a subunit of an enzyme, right? where it's not the substrate, obviously. So all these studies seem to indicate a role for glycogen binding and stabilizing of the AMP kinase. It's kind of making a macromolecular um, ultrastructure uh, within the cell so that perhaps it's not proteolytically degraded, the AMP kinase, nor can it be perhaps further modified, thus diminishing its activation or removing those activating phosphates by phosphatase enzymes, right? So the AMP kinase gamma subunits provide what is obviously the energy sensing functionality of the AMP kinase, because this is where the um, uh, you have this uh, AMP binding, and you also have the cystathione beta synthase domains, and those are the ones that bind to the adenine nucleotides, particularly AMP, or if those are washed out, ADP or ATP, which would then what? Deactivate the enzyme. Now, although each gamma subunit contains four of those cystathione beta synthase domains, which are capable of binding adenine nucleotides, the CBS1 and the CBS3 domains appear to be the primary sites that are responsible for the energetic sensing, specifically, of course, of AMP binding, right? So AMP kinase gamma subunit isoforms can also vary in the length of their N termini. With AMP kinase gamma 2 and gamma 3 both possessing an extended N terminus relative to the AMP kinase gamma 1 isoforms with further regulation of those two subunit domain structures. Indeed, variations in that entire N terminal region appears to modulate responses to the gamma portion of the protein. Right? So that has been linked to uh, pharmaceutical industry trying to find pharmacologic agonists and pseudo-agonists to activate the AMP kinase only under very tight regulation. And this is something that's profoundly necessary to be able to control the enzyme without um, basically corrupting the normal regulation. This is something that um, is often overlooked. I mentioned to you about the creatine, how taking exogenous supplemental creatine can completely corrupt the whole energy charge of a system because of the 
pushing of the phosphorylation of creatine and then the destruction of that entire system by making creatinine and then the kidney failing to get rid of the creatinine causing sometimes uh, kidney damage, right? These are all associated with creatinine. Same kind of thing could be envisaged if you try to activate the AMP kinase with something like AMP, right? Which is a natural nucleotide that would be binding to those domains, right? So what they try to do is find um, pharmacological agents. They do this by um, intelligent drug design so that you only modify a particular domain of a protein as it is organized in the functional polypeptide and the completely folded protein. And that way, you would have to compete with natural agonists and antagonists. Thus, you only temporarily, and again, with great deal of both frequency and amplitude modulation with the agonist or the antagonist, control the activity of the protein. And it's done through, done through titration using these drugs uh, and also by uh, the formulation of the drug getting it to specific targets, like say the kidney, not the liver, or only the liver and not the cardiac, or vice versa. You get the point. So this is a very critical aspect of uh, pharmacology that, again, often gets overlooked when people talk about um, pharmaceutical drugs. They think that they just function as an on-off switch. And generally speaking, that was left back in the 70s. Uh, uh, when chemotherapeutics were being uh, used in massive quantities and they caused, of course, a lot of cellular damage and death. We moved away from those in the 90s and after the 2000s have been working really hard to get away from drugs that have severe damage on cellular ontogeny and ontology and try to move to drugs, again, that worked as partial agonists or partial antagonists. And that includes the protein um, modification level, right? And that's, again, where we're at right now with this whole discussion. So I also want to say, um, yeah, I think we can tell you that AMP kinase alpha subunits um, have been probably the most modified by pharmaceuticals uh, because they are affecting, again, the kinase domain, so the activity of the enzyme itself. Now, there is an interaction of long-chain fatty acid, but not free fatty acid. Of course, you would never really find that in a cell. These would be long-chain fatty acyl-CoA esters. And those are actually quite capable of stimulating AMP kinase. So as AMP kinase has numerous targets uh, for post-translational modification allosteric control, both direct and indirect, the regulation by lipid metabolism makes obvious um, molecular sense. And the interaction likely offers a direct feedback loop for lipids on AMP kinase signaling, right? So the novel endogenous interaction of these long-chain fatty acyl-CoAs, because you don't see much of this in biochemistry uh, as allosteric controllers, except with direct enzymes in fatty acid metabolism like fatty acid synthase, <clears throat> certain desaturation in long cases as well. Think about it. But this um, effect of the fatty acyl-CoA on AMP kinase is somewhat unique because it seems to only be the ones where you have, you have the AMP 
kinase beta-1 isoforms, okay, when the, that particular beta subunits of the type 1. So that means that you're going to get very novel expression of that whole system, right, as I mentioned at the beginning of the lecture now. So that could implicate, actually, if you think about it, that maybe de novo fatty acid synthesis and beta-oxidation, which, of course, are in dynamic disequilibrium from one another. They are definitely contrarian in any given cell at any given time and space in the cell cycle, for example, or the, or the age of the cell. Having the control at the level of an acyl-CoA, right, makes a great deal of biochemical um, mechanistic control sense because it means either way, either increasing the amount of fatty acid synthesis or increasing the amount of beta oxidation will get you at a point where there's a certain concentration of long chain acyl coas that would be able to modify the amp kinase activity. So this is a, that means it's highly regulated metabolic metabolic level, and at the multiple levels I've just been mentioning to you, very 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 discreetly and significantly associated with. Also, neuronal control. So the AMP kinase is one of these um, enzymes that can have long-term regulation, right? So remember, you have this catalytic alpha subunit and two regulatory subunits. You know they are canonically phosphorylated at 3 ne 172 um, That's on the alpha subunit. That's done by the LKB1 and by that calcium calmodulin enzyme. I also told you that this whole system is allosterically activated by AMP and that that induces a phosphorylation of 3-N-172 by the LKB1. And you can also um, regulate it by ATP-consuming processes, okay? So if you think about what will activate the AMP kinase, 